You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. And Glenn, uh, a little factoid here for you. I recently learned that when Babe Ruth was uh, out pitching, you know, this is back in the days of wool uniforms and, um, you know, playing in the daytime uh, in throughout the summer. Uh, and you guess what he would place under his cap to help him keep cool? Hmm. Um, how about alcohol? An alcohol so drag that he could then sip on as he got uh, thirsty. Uh, that would that that's actually a pretty good guess. Actually, actually, of uh, you know, just you can also knowing you're hearing reading about Babe Ruth and stuff. But nope, a leaf or two of cabbage. Hmm. Uh, he'd have them in a cooler, get a nice ice cold, and then put a couple leaves under his hat and switch them switch out every other inning. Um, and then kept reading that uh, this is considered, uh, in today's times, unsportsmanlike in South Korea, uh, unless <laughs> unless you have a doctor's note. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, in South Korea because he's making kimchi or some sort of kimchi? <laughs> maybe, that... maybe that's maybe that's the thing. It's so important, you know, in in South Korea that using cabbage as as a you know, noggin cooler would be, you know, considered uncouth. Interesting. <laughs> well, I have a factoid for you, sir. All right, let's hear it. We're back, baby. Hey. Yeah. We're back on we're back on the air. We're recording again. How's that? Oh, I've missed it. I really have. Um, so I, I'm I'm excited to be back on the phone here with you, and um, and and hope again. I think I've said this <laughs> multiple times now uh, to get back on a rhythm and uh, uh, and keep it running. Um, but um, um, uh, yeah, we've we've got a lot to catch up on, um, and it'll take us a few weeks to <laughs> to to catch up on. On, on everything that's been going on over the past oh probably six months or so five months but um uh, well if it, if they're new listeners they won't notice any difference this will just true. be uh, the, the next episode the and, people and, and have you're listening in the far distant future you really didn't notice anything it just continued right along in the next, next episode but uh in that's real right. time it's been a few months off but uh, uh looking forward to covering all the emails and papers and and well wishes exactly that have been coming through in, in that time period and and i do have a couple of things to update you on too eric that i think you'll find very important okay so fingerprints are still unique oh, oh. and they are still permanent in that 2018 has not cha- yeah has not changed Breaking uh, news. so just just want you to know that <laughs> and uh <laughs> and we're still getting dauber challenges even today they're still under the gun and uh frankly nothing has changed <laughs> nothing nothing has changed six months off and still right. the same old profession we were well uh, as a, as a quick recap uh of things uh, one of the reasons that at least the the hi- this hiatus started is because um after we recorded uh, our last episode interviewing um, Anya Einstein back at the end of September, uh, then 
um, uh, we both had some trips scheduled and I ended up going that in that month, uh, to, um, uh, to Alaska, to the Netherlands and to Panama city beach, Florida. Um, and what a whirlwind of, of travel and, and different foods and people. And, um, uh, it, that was, that was, <laughs> that definitely was a interesting and exciting, uh, travel month. Um, but, um, what, what did you discover in the Netherlands about fingerprints that you didn't know or surprised you? Well, let's see about, um, I, I, um, I learned this is fascinating to me. The, okay. The world's first like remote, um, fingerprint system. You know, we have the databases, right? And then the computers just go zip, zip, zip and talk to each other back and forth. Yeah. In Eastern Europe, and I don't have the stuff in front of me, so I'm gonna. This is kind of a little vague on countries and stuff. They developed a um, a international uh, fingerprint database system to transmit fingerprint data uh, across with uh, Morse code. They had this whole series of tapping out uh, all the patterns and then more specifically where all these events were happening with, you know, in the cores of all these patterns um, to so that if someone got arrested across, you know, international borders in Europe, uh, Mm -hmm. they could, uh, you know, dip, dit and dot and tap out the message uh, across the uh, the wire and... um, and uh, you know, with a, like a telegraph, uh, send that information across to be on the lookout for this person. And um, and there was a little talk about about that uh, from one of the uh, the, the uh, examiners from Eastern Europe that you know whose country that guy came from. <laughs> like I said, I'm not prepared because it just sprung into my mind with all the details of this. But um, I found that absolutely fascinating. That is really, yeah, that's really cool. Okay, All right. I had no idea. No, that that is pretty fascinating. Will that be in a future episode that we might hear from that examiner? Then I hope so. Um, I'll I got it in my my notepad uh, of all the notes I took uh, at that at the European Division Conference, and um, uh, and yeah, that'd be a great idea to to get her over Skype or something and um, and get more of those details because the, the the talk that she gave at the conference I thought was absolutely fascinating. Um, oh, cool. Okay. Uh, of how, you know, just with the technology at the time, uh, you know, able to, uh, to share that information and, and, uh, and use it to catch, uh, those border hopping criminals. That is, that is actually really cool. Uh, well, that, that's a great takeaway. So, yeah. I, I also had a lot of travel in the fall. I went to China for the first yes. time and, uh, went to an international fingerprint research group conference and called IFRG and uh, you know a lot of uh, researchers well-known researchers were there Christoph Shampo, Chris Leonard, uh, Andy Bacu, Yosef uh, uh, Almog um, you know the, the basically anyone who's done any research in uh, areas of uh, fingerprint development or um, you know chemical enhancement development etc of latent prints uh, they they were attending, 
and uh, it was it was very cool. Uh, the the Chinese are amazing hosts, hmm. and we had a you know it was very similar to the experience in Taiwan. They think of everything, they take care of everything. Oh oh, oh actually, I have a story. I have a story. Oh, okay, <laughs> go ahead. It, it just came to me. So one of the evenings, uh, the the early evenings, we were supposed to meet all of these diplomats and. Uh, folks from the university police system. It's their their police college is part of their university system there that we were staying at. Okay, and they were having this big banquet for us, recognizing they had all these international delegates. You know, Brian Dalrymple from Canada, and you know all these all these other people. Many people have been on the show before. We've talked about, and um, they had said that dinner's at six thirty. But we didn't finish at the conference till maybe 5.30, and I needed to get back and make some phone calls, and I had some things to take care of. And at, like, 6.25, there's a knock on my door. <laughs> and um, because we all had these little handlers that follow us around everywhere, and so at 6.25, they're, they're like, Mr. Glenn, are you ready to go to dinner? I'm like, no, no, just, uh, just give me a few more minutes, and, then, and I'll, 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 I'll be up. I, you know, I, I knew where the dinner was, and but I didn't know it was, it was going to be much of a, a big deal. I just thought it was dinner. Right. Um, and so anyway, so I, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll be up in a few minutes. And then like three minutes later, there's another knock at my door, and uh, <laughs> you know, I just was like, well, I'm not quite ready. Um, just give me a couple more minutes. I'll, I'll meet you up there. I'll be up there. And so now it's like 6.35 or whatever. And there's a, a, another person who is now knocked at the door, different from the first person. And this person is very nervous. And, and they're like, Mr. Glenn, uh, it, it's dinner. We, we have to go. I'm like, yeah, I know. I know. I, I'm not that hungry right at the moment, but I'll, I'll be along in a moment. I'm trying to take care of a few things, trying to just got, it, got some stuff to do. And so I just you know politely shut the door. And now it's... 640, 645 or whatever and there is a very loud frantic knock at the door. It's a third person <laughs> and the other two people who had previously knocked on the door are now standing in the, the hallway and this third person just sweating bullets and he's like, Mr. Glenn, please, you have to come to dinner now. I'm like, alright, for God's sake, alright, fine. <laughs> and I'm like, alright, I'm here, I'll, I'll throw on a jacket and He's like, no, no, you don't realize dinner has started and you're seated at the vice president's table. And the vice president is sitting next to you, waiting. And then I went, oh, no. And it began to occur to me, you know, and you've been there so you know the culture. Um, you know, they seat their respected people with various people and there's a certain level of respect. And if you are not there, you are disrespecting them. Right. And I realize now that my absence is causing potential international incident. <laughs> Now, when you say vice president, yeah, the vice president of this university police commission, blah blah, some high-ranking officer in Chi in Chinese government, and I now realize oh, th this is why they're all freaking out. <laughs> so um, I grab my stuff, I go up to dinner, but knowing that the Chinese love magic. I grab some magic tricks and some cards, and I figure I know how to smooth this over. 
So when I got up there, I of course I apologized profusely. I didn't realize, and I could tell that she was pretty icy. And oh, this this vice president, I was sitting next to her. She was waiting on me, and I and I just realized how disrespectful that was. I didn't realize what this event was or or this whole you know issue, and I just tried to explain. I I, I didn't realize. I'm sorry. I had to call home, take care of things, blah blah blah. And but then I I showed her some magic tricks and smoothed everything over and. She seemed to uh, warm up very nicely after that. But I do want to apologize to China. I did not mean to disrespect that. <laughs> well, um, I'll, I'll jump in with a, a quick story as well uh, of my travel to uh, the Netherlands. Um, uh, so it being in Amsterdam, um, you know, it was just basically seeing the conference during the week. And then on Saturday, um, you know, stayed a little longer to... Uh, see parts of Europe. So on Saturday, I I biked around Amsterdam, and it was you know gorgeous, and all the canals are amazing, and um, saw the Van Gogh Museum, and which is kind of weird because like okay, when you when you think of Vincent Van Gogh, what's the first painting that comes to mind? Uh, Self portrait. Self portrait. Okay, for me, it'd be Starry Night. Mm, okay. um, yeah. But self-portrait uh sunflowers you know people love things to mm-hmm. jump into mind um so starry night is in new york city um it's just where it ended up as after it got sold and stuff over the years uh in the Vinci- and, and self self-portraits actually in detroit this is why okay. it, it always That's comes to in my it. mind yeah well he did lots of self-portraits but he only did the one starry night um it <laughs> In the Vincent van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, there is no mention or reference or picture in the or I you know thing to buy in the gift shop of Starry Night. It's like really it did well, not exist. That's pretty fascinating. Huh. Um, I, I just found that really amusing. Anyway, um, so then I thought that I would um, jump on the train on uh, and then on Sunday go to uh, see Germany, uh, which is. Um, kind of northwestern Germany is where um, mm-hmm. my dad's side of the family is from. So I thought I'd kind of, I don't know, just wherever the winds took me. So after, you know, biking around, like I said, Amsterdam all day, um, I was really kind of just winging it and hadn't, didn't have a hotel reservation for Saturday night, uh, thinking that I'd just kind of jump on the train and, and figure it out as I went. Um, but spent so long in Amsterdam because there was just so much to see that I figured, oh, maybe I'll just stay here in Amsterdam and then hit, you get on the train first thing in the morning. Uh, And there's no room at the inn. And so Mm. I, I just kind of take a backpack, you know, leave my, most of my luggage with the hotel that the conference was at, say, I'll be back for this, you know, um, Monday morning when I fly out. Um, and I'll just kind of figure I'll just walk to another hotel. And then that hotel was full. And so was the next one and the next one. So I <laughs> I kind of start looking around and see that there's a, a train departing for Germany. Um, it's now like one or two in the morning. Um, and uh, so I, I make it to the train station, jump on the, you know, the midnight train to Germany. Um, with apologies to Gladys Knight and the Pips. Um, <laughs> and um, here I'll, I'll just sleep kind of as I go. And uh, the train stops in, I have to look on a map of 
the kind of the the next Dutch town kind of closest uh, closer to Germany, uh, you know, bigger Dutch town there, and um, realized, oh, I got like a layover here of like five hours. Um, so, huh? Well, maybe I'll just kind of find a you know a bench to kind of park on in the, the train station. Nope, security comes around. Train station's closed. Get out. So I started wandering around the city, finding another hotel. Nope, they're booked up. And then I get informed there's going to be no hotel in the entire city with a vacant room because the Rolling Stones are in town tonight. Oh, wow. You are a vagrant bum. <laughs> so, and I have no place to stay. Um, so I wandered and, until I hear some noise and there's like, a, you know, Saturday night stuff going on. And I find an all-night kebab shop um (laughs) order myself uh some gyro meat uh sit down in a booth and just kind of uh sit there half asleep for a few hours until i can make it into uh you know onto the train the train the next morning is beautiful because it goes right along the uh the rhine um with like the wine country in germany and it is Mm -hmm. gorgeous there's just vineyards going up the mountains you know up the sides of the mountains off the river and it's it's just beautiful uh so i ended up in frankfurt and uh frankfurt is amazing it's like the financial capital of germany and uh everything's big it's like chicago um like there's artwork outside that's just like boom big huge sculptures and statues and the buildings are immense you know that and um, all mixed in with the old European buildings, but these, mm-hmm. these, you know, metallic, um, you know, pillars to, to capitalism. Um, and then they had the, the, the specialty there in Frankfurt is the, uh, schnitzel with green sauce, which was amazingly yes. good. And I guess you could only get the ingredients for it. Like it's like specialty to Frankfurt. No one else in Germany makes this stuff. Anyway, it, uh, that was all great. Get on the train Sunday night because I got to catch the the flight. My flight back home uh, Monday morning um, uh, to to home from Amsterdam. Uh, so this is now the second night I'll be spending on a train uh, without a hotel or shower or anything. <laughs> and um, so I need to change trains in Dusseldorf. So um, you know, getting there also, and I see the sign. Uh, also, you know. Boom, Dusseldorf. So I pick up all my stuff, and what I didn't quite realize is that, is, I mean, I understand about German efficiency, but boy, oh boy, if you need to want to get off a train in Germany, you better be standing at the door because it is <laughs> in the station for all of 12 seconds um, before it is on its way to the next stop. So I get all my stuff up and I run and the door closes right in my face and I go, oh no. So I start, I sit back down, I start checking the schedule, checking the schedule. Totally fine. Next stop is in Duisburg. There's another train that's going back to Dusseldorf. I still make it in time to catch the train that I needed to catch uh, there. So I get off in Duisburg um, and then here comes the next train to go back to Dusseldorf, get on that train. I'm heading back to Dusseldorf and now I'm ready. You know, I got everything 
in my hand, ready to go. And um, Dusseldorf comes at the door, doors open, I get off, good to go. And as the train's leaving, I'm looking around going, huh, wait a minute. Oh no, I'm at the Dusseldorf Airport Station, not the Dusseldorf Central Station. And that oh, makes no. a big difference. So now I'm, I need to totally rework this. So I, I figure out, you know, um, um, exactly how I need to now get back to Amsterdam again, which first involves going back to Duisburg and then uh, catching the rest of the trains. Oh, no. So anyway, uh-huh. I'm I'm finally I'm going to be a, like. 45 minutes later than I thought back to Amsterdam, but it's still going to be okay to get all the way to the airport. And, uh, as I'm, as I'm crossing the border into, uh, the Netherlands, um, you know, guy approaches, uh, and for the first time while I was in Germany, the ticket taker guy shows up. There hadn't been a ticket taker this whole time. I've got hundreds of miles with no ticket taker. But all of a sudden, there's a ticket taker. And I start, I'm like, okay, one second. So I go through my bag, my backpack, my pockets. No ticket. I think that mm-hmm. in my rush, the first time getting off the train, I had fallen off the table or something. And he was like, okay, just fine. Just pay. And I look at my wallet, and I don't have enough cash. So I show him my card, and he's like, cash. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. And he's like, all right, next stop. <laughs> I'm like, ah! Oh, um, man. So, um, he barely speaks English. I got no German. So, um, he uh, he comes back around after a few minutes and asks to look at my passport. And I'm like, what am I? Here you go. I got the passport. Here's my passport. He starts flipping through, flips through every single page of my passport. Most, most of which are blank because I haven't really done a whole lot of international travel. And uh, he decides to take pity on the, um, you know, the hapless American and says, it's okay, it's okay, you can stay. Mm. Um, okay. Realizing that this, this is my first time in Europe because I don't have any other stamps in my passport. But 10 minutes later, he's like, all right, come on, come on. I'm like, what? I, I, maybe I misunderstood Oh, I thought he said I could stay. We're coming up on the next stop. He needs wants me to, you know, come on, come on. So I get all my bags. He leads me off the train, and I'm like, oh, well, okay. I'll just buy a ticket and get on the next one. And he starts running forward on the train and starts and yells back, come on, come on, come on. So I, okay, just start running after him, and we get onto the about two cars up back onto the train. Turns out the train was leaving my car behind. Oh my gosh. And the only cars that were going to keep going all the way to Amsterdam were the ones at the front of the train. Yep. 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 So kind of a good thing, you know, anyway, um, I eventually make it back. I get off in, um, whatever the first, uh, uh, town or big city in, in the, the Netherlands was, um, so I don't have a ticket. I have to ask, uh, for help from the police officer to let me out because you need your ticket to get out of the train area in Amsterdam, in the, uh, the Netherlands. Buy another ticket, go back in, get on the train, get back to the hotel, get all my stuff, get back to now the metro, go all the way to the airport, rush in, 
running all the way across the Amsterdam airport, finally make it to the gate with about 15 minutes to spare. Uh, wow. The flight was delayed for an hour, so I had an hour and 15 minutes to spare. Oh. Um, oh, okay. And then eventually made it back okay. So, Wow. That was <laughs> my train adventure in Germany. That's a harrowing story. <laughs> um, and I guess, I don't know, I, I, I think I'm partially used to it because whenever I travel, stuff like that seems to happen. Um, and, but I know some listeners will just would be like, I couldn't have handled that. That would have driven me absolutely insane to, uh, hmm. um, so, uh, well, be careful when you glad, travel with me cause it ends up being an adventure. Glad you made it back and you're not in a German <laughs> gulag or prison or they might have German gulags. I, yeah. That's, I think that's a different country, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, no, close enough. Close enough. All right, Glenn. Um, this is enough uh, reminiscing or recapping of our adventures over the past few months. Let's talk about some fingerprint stuff. Uh, you yeah. were involved in a Daubert challenge recently. Right. So I'm not going to say the state right now. And just because it's an ongoing case and some other stuff. And, you know, uh, I don't think it's that important. But uh, I had a chance to uh, go to a different state for a Daubert hearing. Was this and as part of your Minnesota duties or? As- no. Nope. No. Okay. Uh, pri- private consultant. Uh, basically, what had happened is it was a um, it was a homicide case, I believe, and there were multiple defendants in the case, and the case had been worked uh, by an examiner who essentially was retiring or had just retired, and um, new examiners came in and reworked the case, but the old examiner, um, high school education, old, um, you know kind of 70s latent print training and approach and you know a few weeks of training through fbi schools and you know and that that sort of thing and you know mostly on the job kind of you know learning and um you know the requirements at the time you know were very limited to what you need to be for a latent print examiner and then this uh this agency hired newer examiners who you know have education understand the standards and you know up on swig fast and make all these changes but it's also a police organization that's not accredited so they're trying to you know make changes you know within the agency that whole story that we've talked about many times in many agencies um, and so now there's a Daubert challenge in this state and the uh, the cl- the defendants in the case have hired or I shouldn't say they hired, but there is a large law firm. And, you know, I've encountered this a couple of times where a local law firm will take on these kinds of cases. They don't take a ton of criminal cases, and but when they do, they have lots of resources and people to throw at it. And it was crazy. When the, when the hearing started, it was just like one of those scenes in The Simpsons where Mr. Burns's, you know army of 12 lawyers comes marching in. <laughs> that's right. that's what this was. I mean, I, there was like 10 lawyers and assistants and paralegals and boxes and carts of just paper and articles just rolling, rolling into the courtroom <laughs> I was like, oh my god um but so my job was to talk about the science and reliability of the science and um and there were a few things that happened that were interesting and they're, they're kind of legal things so i don't i don't know that we need to delve in them too much here but i mean I, you know as as you know and probably as we've talked about before you know in a dauber challenge is really two things you can focus on it's the reliability of the science and the methodology which is one thing and then the 
uh, the qualifications and application by the examiner right. in the case. And I, it it seemed, and I got the sense, you know, from their you know from their questions and preparation that I think they were more focused on the qualifications of the original examiner in the case. You know, not having the education, uh, not having you know, probably being coached up enough on Swigfast and some of these other these other issues. Uh, but uh, you know, I just focused on the the reliability of science and the research. And the first thing that surprised me was just how much I could delve into since 2000 when I started, you know, huh. 2000, 2001, yeah. when, I mean, I remember going over Daubert in those years and the five factors, general acceptance, has it been tested or can it be tested? Are there known standards? Has it been peer-reviewed? Are there error rate studies? And that's just, you know, applied to ACE-V. And I remember basically going, um, wow. I think we got two of these, two out of five, on this checklist in 2000, 2001, which that was what prompted me to do a lot of my research and get really involved because I just kept thinking that we're supposed to be able to show easily these five things, and we can barely show two of them at the time. And and then now here we are, 2018, and general acceptance, no problem. Yes, this is generally accepted method. You can look at SWIGFAST standards. Um, you know, one thing that was brought up was it's generally accepted and has been accepted in all 50 states. And there is case law that you know uh, we were able to provide, uh, and in all what is it, 11 or 13 federal jurisdictions or whatever whatever right. it is, you know, in all federal jurisdictions, basically it's it is. It's accepted in the courtrooms and generally accepted amongst practitioners. So general acceptance, easy peasy. Um, has it been tested? You know, I just I threw a whole bunch of research articles just up on the screen and said, look, you know, besides error rate studies, uh, we've done eye tracking studies. We've done study uh, studies comparing experts and lay people. Uh, we've done bias studies. We've done analysis studies to see, you know, these tasks, you know, how good are they at this task or that task. We've done comparison studies. We've got the sufficiency studies. We've got the NIJ stuff I did with Cedric. We've got uh, people using models and tools. And I'm just, I just rattled off, you know, 20 different things that we've been able to do in the last, you know, two decades. Uh, known standards, you know, swig fast. Uh, you you can you know uh, get accredited and follow those ISO standards. You can get certified, and you know again, you know all these different qualifications and rules and different things out there uh, that are in place that can prop up not just the profession but you as an examiner. So you know, cited all those things. Uh, when it comes to you know peer review, I just named a bunch of journals in which articles are published in, you know, including proceedings of National Academy of Sciences, yep. you know, for for the the noblest study, and just you know named a bunch of others. And I, then I like lastly, throwing in the uh, the Royal Statistical Society for uh, uh, as well for um, uh, Cedric's paper. Well, that was actually the that was the first research article we led off with with the discriminability of fingerprints. Right. You know when the when the question was asked, are there studies that show that fingerprints are unique, I talked about, well, you can't prove uniqueness. It's an improvable concept. But we have research that shows X, Y, Z. 
Um, and we have research that shows that fingerprints and their arrangements are highly variable. We have these statistics that show that these arrangements, you know, uh, would be unexpected to be shared by lots of people. And, you know, we, I just actually put the, the, the box plot slide from Cedric's study up on screen and walked the judge right through it and showed that fingerprints are very powerful discriminating characteristics. But they vary, and some arrangements are not that discriminating, and some are. It depends. Right. And just ran them through that. And then, you know, lastly, the error rate studies and ran them through all the different error rates, noting that only two of them are mentioned or um, considered by PCAST to be valid error rate studies for the purposes of measuring error rates. But I, I did point out that these other studies that do report error rates doesn't mean that they are invalid. Their purpose was not to just report error rates, but error rates were a part of those studies. and Or they were discounted for various reasons that I don't, I don't know that should discount them completely from an error rate discussion. But anyway, I just kind of walked through all of, all of those five factors, and it was... I mean, I don't want to say easy, but there was just so much to draw from that well that hadn't been there. I, I, don't, th- I don't know that modern examiners can appreciate <laughs> how deep that well is right now. You've, you've um, you know, almost have doubled the, the, the years in the field that I do. And, um, I mean, I still feel it even though I started in, in 07. You know, um, the change in the conversations you know, that were going on on the message boards and just at conferences mm. from my first uh, conference in 08 in uh, Louisville to, um, you know, some of the conference, like the one in Phoenix or Rhode Island, you know, the few years later uh, after the black box uh, came out. Mm-hmm. I mean, things absolutely changed dramatically in in how things um you know, were described and, and, and how specific you can get with, uh, with all the research data instead of the more generalities, um, and theoretical, uh, arguments that were made before. Yeah. Yeah. It, there, there really is just a, a wealth. And, you know, I, I tried to name just a bunch for listeners if they're ever thinking about preparing for a Daubert hearing, but, you know, I, I, if you're familiar with the research, and you know, have, have you know listened to other past episodes? I mean, I, I think we've gone over enough of those studies that I, I, I really do think that examiners have have an easier time. The, the stuff that was probably more complicated in this hearing were the discussions about what does identification mean? What's an individualization? Is it to right. the exclusion of all others? That's the stuff I think that was more complicated and more nuanced. But the, you know, um, I, I, th- I think we're able to make that point to the judge and explain this terminology. And we weren't proposing to the exclusion of all others. The original examiner in this case was, of course, but that's how, you know, she had been trained years ago. Right. Whereas the newer examiners had taken over and said, no, no, we don't say that anymore. It's an identification, but that doesn't mean this. It just means this. And, you know, they, they again, were much more familiar with current terminology in, in, the, in these issues. So any uh, interesting questions or, or uh, I mean, did you, did you get to hear some of the other experts from the other side uh, testify as well? There were no other experts on the other side. It was just me. I, I again, I, I feel that 
I mean, I, I got some good questions, and I actually thought she was very fair, and, you know, she she poked around a little bit, but I don't know that she seemed to know this stuff really... Well, either she didn't know it really, really in-depth, because she only seems to know PCAST pretty well. And she caught me on one thing that um, I, I, I guess I had missed in the PCAST report. This and is the one defense of those. attorney? Mm-hmm, yep. Uh, she had asked... So, what, all right, so let me back up. Obviously, it, when I'm testifying the error rates, it's easier, and I prefer to use the black box study. The Miami-Dade study, while I appreciate the study <laughs> and I, I, it's useful, you know, obviously one in eighteen, which is a number that gets thrown around, um, is a difficult number to deal with if you don't know the background of the study and some things to talk about. Because first of all, it's not one in eighteen; nope. that's the upper confidence limit. The result in the study was 1 in 24, but that's not actually the actual number either because, and when I say 1 in 24, that means 1 in 24 trials there was an error, but in that study there were a number of perceived clerical errors. So we, we, we put some slides up. In fact, I did this with both Black Box and, and the Miami-Dade study. My feeling is, and we stressed this several times, is that there are different ways to calculate these statistics. None of them are wrong. PCAS chose one way to report these statistics, but I don't know that, well, it's certainly not the only way, and I don't know that it's the right way. It's a convention that they chose. And I'll, I I'll say it was the wrong way. <laughs> well, I, I explained why I disagreed with their approach <laughs> and their reasoning right. behind it. You know, and particularly even when they cite just a one-sided confidence interval, I disagreed and think if you're going to throw in confidence intervals, then you should give a two-sided. Again, I think their reasoning, as we discussed in other episodes, if you don't think juries can understand two con- two sided confidence intervals, and you're worried they're just going to focus on the lower number, then you sh- probably shouldn't be discussing confidence intervals at all. I, I just I, I think it's silly. I just well we've discussed it. it it's silly um, because this is all the attorney do does now is just focus on the upper confidence interval. They do the exact opposite of what they are fearful the jury is going to do and just focus on that number, and that's not the result of the study. It's a confidence interval, a measure of precision of the study, but it's not the result of the study. And furthermore, um, we put the raw data up, and we put the raw data up on the screen. That way, and I just, again, emphasized, Your Honor, there's different ways to interpret these statistics. But I just kind of wanted, for example, in the black box study, just for him to see six false positives out of, you know, 4,000 attempts for, you know, non-matches, basically. And in the Miami-Dade study, it was something like 42 false positives out of 1,000 or 1,500 attempts. But then we showed that even in the study and PCAST, they believe that perhaps 35 of those might have been clerical errors. So then we just show what those numbers would look. We just left the raw data up there so the judge could see for himself. And, and again, point being, we did the studies. It doesn't have to be zero. Uh, the error rate you know, qualification under Daubert is, did you do these studies? Right. What is the known or potential error rate? And I just stress that there are two different kinds of studies under different conditions. And, you know, if you look at thousands and thousands of attempts with a handful of errors, depending on what kinds of errors, you know, you're concerned about, relatively small number of errors. And then, you know, we we can quibble about how to calculate or compute that particular error rate. And uh, the one thing that she said was, 
the defense attorney asked me, well, didn't PCAST say that the error rate was too high for latent fingerprints to be reliable? I said, I don't recall them saying that. They said, well, and then she sort of backtracked and said, well, didn't they say that jurors would be surprised to hear that that's what that number is, that it's so much higher than their perception? And I said, you know, they do mention something about jurors' perceptions of error rate, but I have no idea how they could have come to that conclusion about what jurors think the actual error rate for fingerprints is because my experience with lay people uh, is quite different than than what they're suggesting. Right. And she and she said, "Well, but didn't they think that jur- didn't they say that jurors think that the error rate's about one in five million? And I said, "I don't know where you're coming up with that number." And she pointed me to PCAST report and uh, and in buried in the footnote there is a citation to Kohler J J Kohler's most recent study with jurors that basically gave um, a bunch of people on like a survey monkey app, you know, of what do you think the error rate for fingerprints is? One in two, one in ten, one in a hundred, one in a thousand, and you know, a whole list of numbers and one in five million is somewhere in the middle. And, you know, this, and I, uh, there's this phenomenon, of course, that, you know, people just kind of take the middle. Right. If, if they had stopped at, let's say, one in a million, would would their survey people have chosen one in ten thousand as exactly. a, right? But because they went all the way up to one in a billion, one in whatever, one in infinity, or never, you know, one in five million is somewhere ish in the middle of it. And my experience with lay people is quite different. When I ask them just out of the blue, give me a number, I have never heard, never heard smaller than one in a thousand. I'm mean, never. I mean, if you just ask them, give me a number, I've never heard less than one in a thousand. So the idea that many jurors seem to think it's one in five million, I have a hard time believing that. Um, but I, I have to admit, I, I need to go and maybe read this study a little bit more thoroughly and, and delve into this a bit more. But that was the one thing that caught me off guard because I didn't realize that there was a study that, that um, was related to this. And so maybe on a future episode uh, – yeah, I'll do my ho- I'll I'll do some more homework on this and maybe we can come back to that. Yeah, sure. Um but but that was probably the one point where I went, "Oh, all right, well, fair point, counselor. I wasn't aware of that and uh well, thank you for pointing that out. Uh that is exactly what the report says." All right, interesting. And then Yeah, I I the, the I I think the the biggest thing I I I experienced and the the pitfalls are having to deal with the Miami-Dade study. You really do have to know that study. You have to know the different ways to compute the error rates. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then we came back into both studies, both FBI Black Box and Miami-Dade, and talked about verification. Because, of course, Black Box did the repeatability, reproducibility study, exactly. which is kind of like a verification study, and Miami-Dade had the verification phase. But PCAST report, you know, doesn't really consider either one of those in their um, in their numbers, and they think that there's too few trials that involve verification of errors to do anything meaningful with those statistics. I don't entirely agree with that, and I think that they have um, they missed the boat on the reliability reproducibility study from Black Box. Well, I mean, you know, even just taking the Black Box and you know seeing that that no error was duplicated, you know, 
I mean, no false positive error. No false positive error. You're right. It was duplicated. You know that that uh, speaks a lot for the verification step. You know, in and of itself. But then you're right. They they went in with the whole repeatability thing, and and there there's definitely good numbers and good data there as well that speak to the uh, effectiveness of of verification. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, we touched on that. And, again, it's not perfect. I mean, there aren't massive – we don't have the same massive data that we do for the, you know, for the first black box part, for the ACE portion. But, again – and, of course, just common sense. I mean, just sometimes can we just have common sense? <laughs> if I mean, even if your verifier is doing a half-ass job and catching half of the errors, you're still catching some errors. Right. So, of course, the the verification – is going to have a reduced number of errors. I mean, again, even if they're barely paying attention. But I'd like to think in these studies, you know, people are, you know, doing a, a good job at the verification aspect. Let me let me ask you about this then. Um, so uh, we've talked about it before, but um, you know, one of the things that I, I keep thinking about when when these error rate things come up um, is. Um, is the where are all the errors, um, you know, phenomenon? Um, you know, we're we're doing these searches in huge databases, and um, you know, if there were errors happening one out of every eighteen times, let's say, especially when you're searching NGI with a billion fingerprints and it's finding the closest close non-match that it can find. I mean, how long can that continue before we identify somebody who was in prison um, or dead when the crime occurred? Uh, right. That's not happening. So, you know. Well, it's not happening at a frequent rate. At a frequent rate. Um, <laughs> and it's certainly not happening at 1 in 20 or whatever. Exactly. Um, and is do you do you see that as a as a helpful argument to make not not in a you know hard data sense mm. but in a you know more of a Just, again common thing. sense yeah common yeah. sense kind of approach I, you know i made that argument in 2005 or six in minnesota in our first fry hearing yeah and it it was a very good defense attorney that that was dealing with uh with <laughs> with me and um it, it fell flat. I tried to make that argument, but it fell flat because I didn't have data. And it was nice when I came back for the next hearing, we had data. And I just preferred relying on that rather than that argument. I mean, I'm with you from a common sense approach. We should rampantly, as you say, be identifying people already in jail. I mean, if it's happening 1 in 20 or 1 in 18 or whatever, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous to think that that's the error rate. I mean, society would really be pretty messed up given the, the number <laughs> right. of identifications that are happening on a daily basis. I mean, that said, I mean, again, I, I prefer to default to the data. Um, no, I, I obviously I, I don't think it's happening at that rate, and I think common sense leads us, you know, to um, to a safe realm. But my experience with private casework, and I don't know how you know how much private casework you're doing these days, man. But uh, the thing that I keep seeing mostly in private cases is that, again, this is a, a general rule of thumb. For the most part, the examiners that have that limited training, the ones that are most likely to make errors, right. 
they're not pushing the envelope. They're right. basically dealing with easy, easy peasy latent prints. It's the agencies that you know have the well-trained examiners, the level three uh, examiners, the radiologists who really begin to push the envelope on things. Those are the ones I'm more concerned about than some of the less trained examiners who only deal with 30 points, you know, latent prints, everything else, they just know value. <laughs> right, right. And I'm not exaggerating. You uh, you probably have seen that they, they just know value unless it's almost pristine APHIS quality. That definitely does happen in, um, in some agencies for varying reasons, uh, it, it seems like, in, in depending on the agency, whether it be training or just lack of oversight or... Um, lack of continuing training, you know, it seems like, or just, you know, natural drift. Um, But I think there's different reasons different agencies end up there, but yeah, absolutely, it it does happen. Um, So uh, did you get the result back from the the judge? Yeah, um, (laughs) two things, two things, well, okay, so yes, two things. Uh, first of all, the the first thing is the judge ruled from the bench uh, right after I left. I mean, I had to leave and catch a flight, so I didn't stick around. Um, but I was getting texts from the examiners who were sitting, you know, through the right. hearing, who said judge ruled. He said, you know, uh, Dr. Langenberg, you know, clearly showed, um, you know, met all these criteria and so forth, and you know, you know, admitted. The the thing that I will say, I. <laughs> uh, this was very flattering, and it was it was kind of kind of nice and kind of sweet, and uh, made made my day. And I and I even hesitated to do this in the first place. There were these moments during the hearing where I was getting asked questions, where I would pause and go, uh, "You guys are going to object to that, right?" <laughs> and there was no objection. Uh, you know, things like, "Well, Dr. Langenberg." Um, you know, do you think that, you know, uh, the um, ACB methodology meets all the Daubert criteria and should be admissible in, in court? And that, that's how they asked me the question. And there was a moment I looked at the judge like, well, I don't want to, I'm not, I don't want to take the judge's job. That's his, <laughs> his, his duty. Um, and I'm not a legal expert and I'm waiting for the objection. And I just go, well, if you're going to let me opine on this, then yes, I I do think it's reliable <laughs> and and should be admitted. There you go. Um, and there were just a couple other questions they asked me that were legal questions, including about the Daubert criteria and you know Rule 702 and these things. And I just again waited and went, okay, if 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 you're going to let me opine, I I'm happy to opine. <laughs> um, so one of the things I, I talked about for the Dauber factor is, you know, I was looking at a judge and I said, you know, as, as you're aware, Your Honor, you know, Justice Blackman in uh, the Dauber decision in 1993 listed out these various factors, these five factors uh, that the judge is supposed to consider for the admissibility of evidence to see if it satisfies Rule 702, um, you know, for, um, you know, uh, reliability. It's it's the checklist for reliability that the methods and the, uh, the methods and the data uh, were generated and relied, you know, from uh, reliable methods. Right. And, you know, just, kind of, just kind of rattled off, you know, seven hundred two and and those prongs. And and I said, and this is what was very flattering. 
was I said, you know, I, I realized that Justice Blackman wrote them in a certain order. I've rearranged their order. And I don't know if you know that I do this. I don't remember, Eric, if you were in the class when I would do this. Um, but I, I've rearranged the order of the five factors into general acceptance, um, testing, or has it been tested, or can it be tested? So tested. Right. Uh, known standards yes. and right peer review and rate of error right. because that spells gatekeeper, gatekeeper right. if you remove all the vowels. And this is this little mnemonic enhancer I came up with years ago. I remember that I from that, the, the first external training first I ever got time. back in 07 from you. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and as far as I know, I'm I'm the one, the only one who's ever come up with that. I've never heard that anywhere else. And I every now and then I present at legal conferences, and I get all these attorneys going, "I've never heard that. I I really like that." (laughs) So I just, you know, I I threw that out there and just said, you know, Your Honor, as you know, you know, the the role of the judge and you know, as deemed in this is gatekeeper. So here are the five factors, just in this little mnemonic enhancer. And so anyway, here here's the flattering thing. When after he ruled on the evidence, he said. You know, in deference to Mr. Langenberg, I'm or I'm going to go through these factors because I really liked his gatekeeper thing, and I'm going to I'm going to change the order of them. <laughs> and he and he put them in the gatekeeper, general acceptance, tested, known standards, peer review, and rate of error, going through in that order. And he made it sound like he's never going to forget those factors now because of that. And I went, oh, that's that's actually really cool. <laughs> Very good. That, that's a little feather in the cap that I thought was uh, yeah. very sweet and and uh, made me feel very good. That's uh, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, it, he was very fair, and uh, you know I think he you know he allowed a lot and from both sides, and uh, ultimately you know he seemed like you know, it, again I I feel like defense was setting everything up for the attack on the local examiner. And her process and methodology, transparency, and how she applied it in qualifications. And then, you know, in this case, the prosecutors basically said, well, we're not calling the local examiner. We had these examinations redone by newer examiners under new standards and under these new conditions. So we're not even calling the original examiner. Right. And and so I think defense had prepared for that part of it. And uh, I heard they were not happy about it. (laughs) So I, I don't know if they they um, they had saved all their ammunition for you know expecting a second witness, which you know I think they everyone was expecting a second witness, and then state rested and said we're not, we're not calling her. There you go. And, well, and they may you know just try to bring that all up actually during the trial in front of the jury, where it'll actually you know be more persuasive to them instead of the judge, probably. Yep. But, but then if if prosecution doesn't call her, they have to call her, which they can. Yeah. And now you're dealing with a hostile witness. True. And that's not a great situation for defense if she's not now the primary examiner on the case. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I don't know. I don't know what will come out of this, but uh, – I've heard I'm, I might go, have to go back on other cases, and they may be bringing up other Daubert challenges in the future in front of other judges. And well, okay. Oh, for the same agency? Uh, possibly, or for yeah. same same court yeah, this, system? For the, well, this law firm, this law firm seems intent on focusing oh. on that, and so this might have just been round one. Which, okay, um, 
Yep. All right. Um, that's that's fine. I just I, I agree with Brendan Max in Chicago and some of the other savvier attorneys. I don't I don't think it's smart to go after the miscibility anymore. I I, I mean if, if right. you're going to strategize, bring up those issues in trial, not during a pretrial, and go after the examiner on the case in front of a jury, which is a much harder audience than just the judge. Right. So there, I just revealed the strategy to defense <laughs> in that case. <laughs> Yeah, all the, the 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 you know the next half dozen latent print examiners that get uh, ambushed yeah. by that stuff. Well, thank you for that. But uh, yeah, they can send me their hate mail. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, all right. Well, um, what do you have uh, coming up uh, here in the next few months uh, that people oh, might my. be interested in? Yeah. Uh, well, if if people hear this soon, uh, you can go online and still register for. Uh, advanced ACV applications. I'm teaching in Florida next month in April, and that is April 16th through the 20th at Ron Smith and Associates. It is just north of Orlando. Uh, great time to be down in Florida. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's still a, maybe five to seven or eight seats left in that class. So bring the family down on spring break. Go to Orlando. Still going to go to the Harry Potter world. Uh, I don't know that I will uh, when I'm down there unless the whole group wants to. I'm kind of in and out on that one, but um, maybe okay. who knows? Oh, you so you've already been then? Oh, I have. Been, yeah, okay. I've been several. Okay. I've been several times, man. I've got a <laughs> I've got a frequent flyer card there. Uh, well, if and you, uh, I don't have anything planned right now. But um, if there are any agencies uh, looking for. The exclusionology class, um, you can go to rayforensics.com or, or send me an email um, asking for more information and um, love to get that scheduled. I have some interest that um, of some agencies that want to send people out to it but don't have enough money to bring it into mm. their own agency. Uh, so if there's a host, maybe even in the Midwest kind of area, um, then... Um, um, you know, there's, there'll probably be even more uh, interest in going. So, um, all right. Well, that does it. If you have any questions for us or uh, just want We're to back. say hi We're or back. welcome back, uh, Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at EliteForensicServices.com or Eric at RayForensics.com. Uh, send us those emails. Well, now i got to remember how to do it. What else to say about this? Uh, listen to us every week or, you know, when we get these up. <laughs> minus hiatuses uh, at Stitcher, at SoundCloud or on iTunes uh, don't forget that the uh, opinions expressed here are those of us and not of any agencies uh, that we may be working for um, and we'll talk to you guys next time bye everybody, have a good week and uh, great to be back music on the Double Loop podcast provided by Blue Wave Theory See them live in concert in New York City on Saturday, May 5th, or in Cape May, New Jersey on Saturday, June 16th.